Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are with a movie that I really, really, really liked the first time I saw it. And we've talked about it before because it's the first horror movie I ever sat through, got through, really enjoyed. And it's what I thought about when I said yes to Shay about the possibility of doing a horror movie podcast. Yeah, this movie's super nostalgic. This is one of the first movies I got at least to agree to watch with me <laughs> in her free time where I don't think the terms and conditions had to be set. And she turned to me at the end of the movie was like, I actually really liked that. <laughs> yes. And the movie is 2014's As Above, So Below. It's a little bit of a sleeper. I won't say a lot of people have seen it before. I don't think so. Maybe, maybe not. I know that it doesn't have a great score on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, and I could maybe see why. <laughs> I will say, yes. Rewatching the movie for this podcast episode, I did find that maybe my taste has changed a little bit, but I still enjoyed watching it. I think there's a lot of really neat historical elements to it, literary elements to it. So I like all the different angles. I couldn't stop thinking of Blair Witch Project watching this. I completely forgot the whole thing is found footage style. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is How a found footage. How can I just forget that? I like remade my memories. Yeah, I don't know what you, <laughs> I don't know what exactly what you remembered about this movie. Was it just the Dante's Inferno stuff or was it La Taupe or was I it? remembered La Taupe. <laughs> oh, I remembered <laughs> the scariest man. Well, let's get into it. Yeah. Okay, so this movie, believe it or not, is not very lady heavy. There's a ton of guys, but we have our final girl, Perdita Weeks, who plays our heroine, Scarlett Marlowe. And I wrote that she is my kind of actress. So by that, I mean that she has done some time in historical dramas, <laughs> which I can talk about. She has portrayed Mary Boleyn before in the Showtime historical drama, The Tudors, which is an awesome series. And she's appeared as Lydia Bennett in the ITV series Lost in Austin. But she was also the murdering teen in the Death of Dreams episode of Midsummer Murders in 2003. So she's done some horror things before. And then we have Marion Lambert, who plays Suxi. And she's a low-profile French actress, based on what I found. And she is not to be confused with the Swiss art collector that kept popping up on my search. <laughs> <laughs> so not that Marion Lambert. Some pre-plot trivia from IMDb, as always. This is really cool, I think. This film was the first ever production that secured permission from the French government to film in the actual French catacombs. The film utilizes a set of narrow winding tunnels of the Paris catacombs, complete with real mint skeletons creepily arranged centuries ago. I'm wondering how many of those shots were actually in the catacombs. Because obviously, like that tour guide scene, I'm like, yeah, that's probably it. But yeah. then how much of the rest was actually underground, you know, but it still really gives a very creepy, authentic vibe. I agree. Also, Ben Feldman, who plays the character George, actually suffers from minor claustrophobia. And he had to keep taking breaks to cope with all of the tight spaces in the film. I wonder if they had to like write that into his character because he was already so genuinely freaked out because he is very claustrophobic and doesn't want to be in the catacombs until he is forced to. Yeah, how much of it was acting and how much of it was just him being himself. Exactly. <laughs> the title of the film comes from the Masonic teachings and lore, which in turn is based heavily on Christian language and belief, specifically being transcribed from a part of the Lord's Prayer in which the phrase on earth as it is in heaven refers to God's will being carried out both in heaven and on earth as he sees fit, which again connects to as above, so below. 
But I will say, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later, it seems like the origin of the phrase as above, so below is somewhat contested. There are a lot of different origins I found. So this one talks about Masonic teachings. Another one came from some like other category of philosophy. Like I'm not really quite sure exactly where it comes from, but across alchemy, philosophy, religion, like this phrase exists. So I don't know where it comes from, but it has existed for a long time across these topics. It definitely has some pagan roots too, because they say that in the craft. Yeah. That's part of their Mm -hmm. binding spell is as above, so below. There's a line in this movie that Scarlet, our main character, is talking about as above, so below. I'm like, this sounds like it could be right out of like a right or like a hex. You know what I mean? And I wrote it down and I was like, this doesn't seem very religious to me. It almost seems a lot more... I don't know, like humanistic and all this kind of stuff. So I don't know, like I thought that was really interesting, especially being that this kind of spell or this kind of language has been present across a lot of our witchcraft movies. That's really interesting. That kind of makes me think of what you said about sounding more like a hex. Prayers a lot of times do sound like hexes. (laughs) I think anything that you take to heart and repeat many times, I don't know, there's a lot of overlapping rhetoric there that I have never considered, but now I'm thinking, oh shit, there really is a lot of connections there between spells or hexes and the patterns of prayers. I bet that there are people that have already written about that and maybe I should look into that. Final thing, the tunnel collapse that happens in the movie mimics the tunnel collapse in the movie The Descent. And I put this in here for you, Shay. We are going to cover The Descent very soon. (laughs) And literally, this is all I could think about watching this because I do enjoy As Above, So Below. It is a really cool movie in its own right. But to me, there is one spelunking horror movie (laughs) And it's The Descent and its sequel, which I adore. I think it's so, so, so good. And yeah, as that collapse happened, I was like, oh, this kind of feels... I mean, granted, there's only so many things you can do when you're underground to like build tension. But there is a scene that is definitely very reminiscent of what happens in The Descent in here. I'm so excited for us to cover The Descent. I don't think you'll love it. Not <laughs> not in the sense that like you won't enjoy it because it is so lady heavy. Ooh. It's... it's <laughs> I don't think it's a bachelorette party, but I think it's like a girl's trip. No way. And they decide to go spelunking and they get stuck underground, but there's some threats existing underground. It's not just the claustrophobia. I was saying to Elise before recording that this very much reminds me of Blair Witch Project, where they play a lot with space time. Mm. and like maps and stuff like that and what's actually the right way out and all this kind of stuff and it's a lot more cerebral where the descent is very much like oh no there are these things that are trying to kill us type of situation wow yeah okay that sounds very scary i think you will be scared because it's also filmed in a found footage style for some of the time so (laughs) i'll have to to buckle my seatbelt now just to (laughs) just just to feel secure yeah prepare yourself (laughs) Well, getting into a little bit more information. So it sounds like the descent, like you said, to take your words is more cerebral or literal, whereas this movie kind of like we've already started to lay the foundation for exists a lot because of previous literature, lore, theories. So how this movie happens and plays out is, I think, a lot more subjective, it's sounding. And part of that has to do with what these spelunkers are actually on a quest for. So before we get into the plot, I want to go over what the Philosopher's Stone is, which is the coveted item that Scarlet gets her team together to find. 
So this is from history.com. The Philosopher's Stone is rooted back to the Middle Ages to around the late 17th century. It was the most sought after goal in the world of alchemy, the medieval ancestor of chemistry. According to the legend, the Philosopher's Stone was a substance that could turn ordinary metals such as iron, tin, lead, zinc, nickel, or copper into precious metals like gold and silver. It also acted as an elixir of life with the power to cure illness, renew the properties of youth, and even grant immortality to those who possessed it. The Philosopher's Stone may not have been a stone at all, but a powder or other type of substance. In their quest to find it, alchemists examined countless substances in their laboratories, building a base of knowledge that would spawn the fields of chemistry, pharmacology, and metallurgy. A little bit more information, many of the Western world's most brilliant minds searched for the Philosopher's Stone over the centuries, including Roger Boyle, the father of modern chemistry, and even Sir Isaac Newton, whose secretive dabblings in alchemy are well known by now. Long before Newton, however, there was Nicolas Flamel, a French bookseller and notary who lived in Paris during the 14th and early 15th centuries. Which, by the way, before I did this research, I thought the whole time his name was Flanel, like a fancy way of saying flannel. Nicolas Flanel. (laughs) But it's not. It's Flamel. In 1382, Flamel claimed to have transformed lead into gold after decoding an ancient book of alchemy with the help of a Spanish scholar familiar with the mystic Hebrew texts known as the Kabbalah, which I'm not sure if I'm saying that perfectly correctly. Whether this was true or not, the historical record shows that Flamel did come into considerable wealth around this time and donated his riches to charity. And Harry Potter fans, hey, might also recognize this Philosopher's Stone because J.K. Rowling incorporated Nicholas Flamel into the first book in her world-famous series. Originally titled Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in the United Kingdom, it was renamed Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone for U.S. publication. It even looks the same in this movie as it does in the first Harry Potter movie. The same color and hue and everything like that, which I found interesting. Yeah, I agree. Like palm-sized. Red, very ruby-like. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the Philosopher's Stone. And because it is so, 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 so powerful, this is what Scarlet is after. But she doesn't really seem like she's into the power as much as she is. And we'll talk about this more. The quote, truth, whatever that means to her. Let's get into it. Yeah. So we open on a bus. This is introducing us to our point of view found footage style shooting. She's filming herself on this bus with people around her, and she begins speaking to the camera. She has her head and face covered and tells us that she is crossing the Iranian border and is confessing to trespassing into the country on a crowded bus. I was like, (laughs) why are we, why are we doing this? She's entering Iran because she believes that holds secrets to part of what she's looking for. And at this point, we don't know exactly what she's looking for, but she's leaving a video diary essentially saying that she's entering the country under her own free will and she's in search for the truth. So then we're working our way through a market where she meets up with this man called Reza and enters a house. Reza welcomes her and warns her as they enter through a secret wall into an underground network of tunnels. Yeah, and he warns her 
maybe she already knows this, but it's well known that these tunnels have been marked for demolition. So it seems like Scarlet is going to be getting in these tunnels at the last possible second to find what she's looking for before the TNT is detonated inside and they explode and they're no more. So he guides her to, I guess, maybe some kind of spot on the wall that maybe he has found and informed her about. It's like an engraved stone. It kind of reminds me of the shape of like a quintessential tombstone, maybe a little bit bigger than that. It's a doorway that she reads somehow and then decides that she's just going to bust through with the tool, which Reza is like, what are you doing? And she's like, it's going to explode anyway. So inside she finds what she introduces to the audience as the rose key, which is kind of like a legend is what I thought of it as. Yes. What's the one for language? Rosetta Stone. It's kind of like the Rosetta Stone, but it's a different language and she can't read it, but she's able to take a couple pictures. And even though it looks like she might not make it because her guide leaves before her because the tunnels are collapsing. She is able to make it back out, but not before she sees the figure of a man hanging from the ceiling of the cave, which temporarily stalls her. But again, she comes to enough with the explosion where she's able to get back out into the house and into safety. Yes. So they both make it out just in time. And Reza says to her, you remind me so much of your father, but Scarlet, you must be more careful. His quest was a path to madness. Anyone who searches for Flamel's stone ends up dead. Okay. So we're getting some key information here that her father is no longer with us and that the Flamel stone is exactly what she's looking for. So the next scene, we are watching an interview unfold. Her cameraman, Benji, seems like he's running this interview and he is asking her a series of questions. We find out that Scarlett already has her PhD. She has all of these other degrees. She knows all of these languages and she looks like she, I don't even know, is 29 years old. And I was so appreciative of this. The cameraman even acknowledges, how do you have all of these degrees? Which I was grateful for. That's what I was thinking. But the interviewer, again, fills in this backstory about her father. He asks Scarlett if her father is mentally unstable, and she answers why, because he killed himself. So again, weaving the story of her father, his previous work, looking for the same stone she is after, and what that might mean for the story later. This is reminding me of the Blair Witch Project, like docu-series introductions, just with a much better dat. <laughs> It actually looks professional and it's not Heather being like, the Blair Witch is this, that, and the other thing. You know what I mean? Like, you could tell that Scarlett is taking her work very seriously. She's very educated. She has a lot of license to be talking about her quest for this stone. And she introduces the figure of Nicholas Flamel. They're walking through his old home in Paris, I guess. Yes, they have made it to France now. Yeah, yeah, locations have changed. She talks about how he was the creator of the stone and that her father believed that the clues to the stone's location were encoded on his gravestone and that the rose key was the key to uncoding it. Now, she doesn't speak the language of the key, but she knows somebody who does. And this leads us to George. So they break into a church in search of George because apparently a hobby of his is breaking into abandoned places and fixing things. Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting, George. So they approach him as he's fixing this church bell tower. That hasn't rung in like 200 years. Yeah, so he's just up there fixing it out of goodwill or whatever. And George lays eyes on Scarlet and says, whatever it is, I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> Which is telling us that they have a little bit of history. 
Scarlet tells George that Benji is helping her make a docuseries about her search for the stone. George warns Benji to stay away from her because the last time that George helped Scarlet, he ended up in Turkish jail. (laughs) Yeah, which I love the specificity there. (laughs) But obviously, we can tell George has such a freaking crush on Scarlet. They're both so cute. They are really cute. He kind of reminds me of a little bit of of a nice boy and she's a pick me girl. And I feel like they just complement each other's energy so well because she's always going to be the one who's like, well, I want to do this and I'm going to do this and I know this, pick me. But he's always going to be the one that's like, well, I'm so nice and you're so smart. I will pick you and follow you wherever you need me to go. And he can like keep up with her intellectual prowess. Like they're both he is so, so smart. fucking yes. smart. Mm-hmm. It's insane. That's another thing about this movie is <laughs> Shane and I were talking about this. Like I wish I had some kind of script to follow along with or some kind of lesson before watching this movie because they literally have conversations that I couldn't even fully follow because of the facts and the stories that they were spitting back and forth. I wish I knew that much about anything. <laughs> Like, yeah. literally, that was all I was thinking about. And they're like, is this before Copernicus or is this after Copernicus? Yeah. There were only seven planets before Copernicus. I'm like, what? Dude, I don't even know, but go off. So George gets roped in. He's going to do this for his lady. But he says, that's it. I'm just going to translate Flamel's tombstone. They break into whatever museum that Scarlet was just at previously. Nobody catches them, which is crazy. He flirts his way in, remember? He does? Yeah, because George is talking to some lady and Benji's like, oh, she's got nice legs. And Scarlet's like, yeah, she's pretty. Oh. Kind of like alluding. Okay, that makes yeah. so much more sense. So he flirts his way in so that they can look for like 10 minutes. But then, of course, Scarlet takes it too far with some national treasure type shit is what I wrote. <laughs> I was watching this with Riley and he goes, is this just scary national treasure? That's exactly <laughs> what it is. That's exactly what it is. If this, if this is what you want. Like, scary national treasure. That is exactly what this movie is. You know what? It makes so much sense now why I loved this movie at first when I saw it. Because I can't get enough of it. This scene is reminding me of the back of the Declaration of Independence thing. Because what does she do? Takes the stone off the wall, puts a light coating of cleaning products on it, and then uses a lighter to burn away the products and reveal a little message at the bottom. So very much resembling the lemon juice and hairdryer scene from National Treasure. It reveals a riddle. It was complicated, but basically it reveals something about the Philosopher's Stone being underground and Scarlet is able to put together this theory that the Philosopher's Stone is 370.5 feet underground, which is half the distance of some kind of godly number. She says that 741 is where the Devil's Gate is and part of the riddle is halfway betwixt Earth and that. Yes. So she's saying that 370.5 feet below Flamel's grave is where the stone should lay and that the catacombs aren't below his grave, but they could use the catacombs to get there, citing that there have been three different city collapses throughout history in France that suggests that there are more hidden passages beneath the city than just the catacombs. Yes. And these collapses are also in a very central area, which is also very spooky because it's sowing this like supernatural what's going on in this area. So they go on a tour, which, yeah, you're right. Maybe this is just the only spot filmed in the catacombs, but they go on a tour to kind of get a general sense of these catacombs and maybe an entrance they might use. Of course, this affirms that Scarlet needs to find a way to get to these off-limits part. You really can't see a vast portion of these catacombs because it's probably so freaking dangerous. So you can only see a very small portion of it. And as she realizes this, a nice random man sitting on a rock lets her know that there's another entrance that this guy, Papillon, at a club next door can take them to go to. 
And she's like, cool. But when she turns around to thank him or ask him another question, he has vanished. Do we think this is Latope? Because I didn't get a good look at him. Oh, this is, I know who this man is. Oh, you do know who this man is. I will let you know who this man is. Okay. He comes back again. And I won't forget to tell you because sometimes I say this comes up later. And then I (laughs) totally forget to mention it. But this is a really important part. And I will let you know later. So they do go to this nightclub to find Papillon. They find him. And (laughs) it's just like the vibe of this nightclub bumping in the background. And then Scarlett being like, you need to take me because of Flamel's treasure. Like (laughs) this conversation versus like the setting is just so jarring to me. She's so kooky. She's so kooky. So Papillon is just sitting with his girlfriend, Suxi, and Scarlett's trying to convince him. There's this part in the catacombs. He's like, no, if it was there, I would have found it by now. And she's like, no, you wouldn't have. I'll give you half the treasure. I'll give you all the treasure. Like, I don't care. Just take me. So he agrees. And the next morning, they meet up and we're introduced to Papillon, Suxi, and then their other friend, Zed, who are going to act as their tour guides to get them into the off-limits parts of the catacombs. Benji is interviewing them about the dangers of the catacombs. You know, you could get crushed. You could suffocate. You could run out of water. All of this kind of stuff. And this is where we get a little bit of a hint that Papillon has like some scars on his hands that he doesn't talk about. And this is going to come up like a little bit later, not in a very direct way, but just in the sense that there's some history there. And of course, this is where we get this pick me conversation where George is (laughs) insistent that he will not go with them where Scarlett's like, no, he's coming. Mm -hmm. She knows the power she wields. But poor George doesn't really end up having a choice. Quickly, he's swept up in the heat of the moment when policemen come out of nowhere, pin, it looks like maybe there was going to be a fourth person to come underground from Papillon's group, pins him to the ground, causing the others to run into the entrance of the tunnel super, super quick to avoid being caught by the police and making sure that they can continue through with this journey. So next thing you know, George is underground, even though he swore he wasn't going to be. And they begin their descent. Papillon, it looks like maybe him and his friends have gone here before. Maybe they're somewhat thrill seekers, but we know that Papillon also has like a tag, like he is a graffiti artist and he leaves his tag places and we can see that other people have been in this area and have left their tags on the inside before. And he leads them through some of these corridors. There's a choir singing like a very culty choir of women singing in one of these stone rooms, which is so strange that it kind of brought me comfort because I was like, oh, other people are here. Well, that's what Pap says. He pretty (laughs) much says, oh, there's always weird people down here because everyone else is like, what the fuck is going on? And he's like, nah, like weirdos come down here. Yeah. Which is kind of reminiscent of any like abandoned place. Yeah. You know, they just call to these different kinds of people. It's also revealed through conversation that George is very claustrophobic and Benji asks Scarlett why. And Scarlett reveals to Benji that George's little brother drowned in a cave when they were younger. Another critique I have about this movie is it's very tell, not as much show. Mm -hmm. Always very convenient bits of dialogue in this movie that feel a little bit more forced than truly organic. But whatever, important information to know. Yeah, because you could have just left it as he doesn't like being underground. He didn't want to be here. And Benji's like, well, why? And it's like, (laughs) why? Isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious? Like, why (laughs) why do you want to be down here? They come to an impasse where they have two different places they could go. They have this area where there's a lot of bones that you would have to crawl over through a tight space to get to the other side of this corridor. And then there seems to be a very perfectly placed corridor that's just barricaded with some rocks. 
Scarlet's like, the corridor is the most direct route. Like, why don't we go that way? But Papillon says that that's a bad place and proceeds to tell them about his friend Latope, who disappeared after going that way. And he hasn't been seen in over two years. Because of that, that convinces Scarlet and the rest of the group that they are instead going to crawl along the top of these bones in the catacombs through this very tight space in the cave to get to where their next destination lies. As Benji squeezes through, he is the last guy holding the camera. He gets stuck and proceeds to panic. And also, as this is happening, there is starting to be a cave collapse. (laughs) Okay, so poor Benji. I feel like Benji really deals with a lot. (laughs) But he ends up getting through right before this impasse collapses. And then everyone is trapped on the other side of the bone wall because of the rubble. But wait, as they walk forward a little bit, they see that they are back right where they started, looking again at this weird blocked off corridor now, and then that same passage that they had previously passed up. But now because they can't get back through that bone section, they decide, well, we have to take down these stones and go through this corridor. It's the only option we have to keep going. Yeah, again, and this is where I said this is very Blair Witch Project, where, you know, it seems like they're going in a circle, like they've passed this tree before, or they've passed this river before. That's what it was. That corridor was going to be taken no matter what, essentially, yeah. which is very eerie. And Papillon is freaked out. He is like, I've never been there before. He even says the line, we're not where we are, which I think is so significant, kind of foreshadowing what they're eventually going to realize. But as they move through the corridor, they see Papillon's tag. And so they get pissed at him because they think that he had lied to them. But Papillon is like, I didn't put that there. Again, sowing, I think, suspicions and conflict within the group. And then they hear a phone ring. Oh my gosh. Like an old fashioned phone. It's just one of those things that you have to think about setting time and place of certain things that seem so normal, but because you are where you are, you're not expecting to hear that noise. Like a baby crying in the woods? Yeah, (laughs) like something like that, where because of being where you are, the fact that there are hundreds of feet underground at this point, the fact that there is a landline phone ringing is just so uncomfortable. Papillon says they used to run phone lines down here, but not anymore. And then as they're walking, again, more of this sentiment appears because they find a piano. Which, how would you even get that down there? Exactly. (laughs) George seems a little transfixed because then he begins to say this piano looks exactly like one that he used to have as a kid that him and his brother would play together. And that one key was always messed up. So he starts to do a little tune and the same key is messed up. Very spooky. So again, fucking with some time space type of stuff. Papillon is reading this situation correctly saying like, listen, we shouldn't fucking be here. But Scarlet says once, as she will continue to say throughout the rest of the movie many times, we just need to keep moving. Then the phone rings again and Scarlet runs after the sound. She eventually finds the phone after like weaving through various corridors. Very dangerous. But she picks up the phone and hears a voice on the other side, very panicked sounding, calling her by name and asking, why won't she talk to him? Just then, a random guy shows up from around the corner, and it's none other than Latope, the guy who supposedly disappeared two years previously from entering that corridor that they had just entered. Yeah, Latope looks very disheveled. He begins saying things like, you shouldn't be here. None of you should be here. None of you came to look for me. You never came to look for me. Obviously, Pap and the rest of his friends are like, what the fuck? What's happening? How have you been living down here? 
Latope's like, if you want a way out, come, like, come with me. And then the ceiling begins to crack, which is kind of forcing them to follow him deeper and deeper. He also says the only way out is down. (laughs) So he shows them a hole and basically is like, we have to go down this hole. And it's like a well style hole, like vertical. So they all set up their rope situations, descend down this hole. Benji, this is added to the list of physical pain (laughs) Benji endures. As he's trying to scoot himself down this rope, he ends up, I guess, losing his grip and getting severe rope burn as he slides down this rope. So he has to get his hands bandaged at the bottom. They enter this other corridor where temporarily they lose their ability to hear before then gaining it and hearing this overwhelming screeching sound and seeing a little boy only for a couple moments before he disappears, which is again, very much sowing this supernatural theme here. Like there are phones, there are pianos from your past, there are little children, there are (laughs) corridors where you can't hear. So like, what is going on? We don't know. And none of them seem scared enough to me, honestly. The sound thing I wrote, it makes it sound like you're yelling underwater or speaking underwater, which, (gasps) yeah. Okay, that makes so much sense. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, is it had to do with George and Mm -hmm. his brother. (sighs) And I think it was Latope or Zed. I don't know exactly who said it. They say, the question is not, what was that, but who was that? I think it was Zed. Yeah, it might have been Probably that. like his one of two lines. He yeah, he's all. not very pivotal. <laughs> but essentially, that could mean one of two things. Obviously, like, there was a boy standing there. Who was that? But also, like, whose guilt is responsible for what we're all experiencing right now? Mm. So they continue on, and they find more art on the wall, and Scarlet uses it to try to solve another riddle that will help unlock where the next passage is. She calls it a Ptolemaic hinge, which is a type of puzzle where you have to move the right stone to reveal the next passageway, otherwise the ceiling will collapse on them all and they will die. Damn. <laughs> and this is where we get this, like, was this before or after Copernicus conversation where George and Scarlet are just having these big brain moments <laughs> of, like, like, this is the riddle. This is what we do. We know so much about history. Aren't we both so smart? And <laughs> they move the right stone and a passageway appears and Scarlet is going face first into it. And I'm like, girl, I think I wrote somewhere. I'm like, she has to be a Virgo. Like the way this girl is just putting her body on the line to find the truth or this stone. I'm like, nothing is that important at this point in time. Like, get me to the surface <laughs> yesterday. Nothing is that important. But instead, she travels through the tunnel and all of them follow And again, this is where I would have checked out. I mean, I would have checked out when the first passage collapsed and we were going through the abandoned one. But they find a dead man on a table in religious garb that apparently has been there for 500 years, but is not decomposed. Pretty sure this is Flamel. Oh. This is Flamel's tomb. But you are correct. He's perfectly preserved. Just a little gray. Yeah, just a little. seems a little self-tanner. He needs a tan. That's that's about (laughs) it. Otherwise, he just looks a little tired. Yeah. But so strange. No one seems really concerned about that. But then Scarlet solves another puzzle and they turn off all their headlamps and she sees a light coming from this little water place. So she swims under this wall through the water up on the other side because the glow of all the treasure and these forever burning candles guides her there. And they have found the area she believes the treasure and the philosopher's stone to be hidden. So they all swim under. They find the room. They're all like super hype about the treasure. But bringing up national treasure again, just like in that movie where there's a fake treasure room. 
Well, this is, I guess, a real treasure room, but it's going to end up being more complicated than that. So Scarlet finds the Philosopher's Stone by retelling this story about the moon who loves the sun, and she finds it and takes it out of the wall. But of course, when she takes it out of the wall, the ceiling collapses. Everyone is mostly okay, except Suxi has a super, super bad arm injury where she was partially pinned under some of the rubble. But because Scarlet has the Philosopher's Stone now, she's able to put her hands on Suxi's arm and heal her. And her injury is totally gone. So everyone is left pretty much in awe about the power of the stone. Turns out that it's real. How amazing is that? Yeah, they begin looking for a way out, and there's more big brain conversation about <laughs> there's this Porta Alchemica. And this is where we get this as above, so below conversation. So they see this relic that pretty much translates to as above, so below. And Scarlet says, this is as above, so below. That phrase is believed to be the key to all magic. It means that what is within me is outside of me, as is on earth, so it is in heaven. As I am, so are my cells, so are my atoms, so is God. Basically, as I believe the world to be, so it is. Which, super cool. As I believe the world to be, so it is. Okay, get in your manifest bag, whatever. (laughs) So essentially that leads them to the logic of if they carved a door on the ceiling, which is what they're reading off of in this moment, then there has to be one on the floor. So she punches a hole in the ground with one of her tools where there's a puddle forming and all the water starts spilling out into a deeper cavern to reveal another passage taking them deeper. But this corridor... And I mean, I will say every corridor they've been in has felt very sinister to me. (laughs) (laughs) This one is extra sinister because there is an inscription above this crawl space that reads, Abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. Which is what is supposed to be inscribed on the gates of hell. And apparently another saying about this is they should be made to crawl on their bellies to enter the kingdom of darkness. And that is the only way they can get through this next corridor. Mm-hmm. And so that is what they do. After that, then they find themselves in the same room that they had just been in, like the same room with the body of Flamel. On this side, the body of Flamel is actually like decomposed. Yeah. So somehow the side is different. Then they hear a weird noise, and it's Latope. He had previously been lost somewhere, hadn't he? Like, he was there, and then he wasn't, but now he's back, because everyone is surprised to see him. I know that he was in the room with the treasure, but I think he disappeared when everything fell. Yes. Okay. So he's back now on this side, and he's acting even more strange than usual. And Suxi tries to talk to him, even though her friends are telling her to be careful. They're picking up on the fact that Latope is acting weird. But then he turns on her, grabs her, and kills her by banging her head on the rocky floor. Because she's already dead, Scarlet informs us that the stone won't work in bringing her back to life. And then Latope vanishes. And guess what? We never see him again. (laughs) That is something I'm trying to wrap my head around in this movie is like, what is Latope? doing besides enticing them further and further and further down like is that the only purpose that he was meant to serve we're starting to catch on to the fact that these people down here are somehow being haunted by mistakes or regrets or sins and i was wondering if latope because when he vanished nobody came to look for him if he was maybe preying on suxi Mm. maybe they had previously been lovers or something maybe before she got with papillon and then she never came to look for him and he got his revenge on her by killing her and then vanishing that's a good point but we don't know that 
And that's not the only quote unquote sin that we're left guessing. Some become very obvious. This one is very vague, but that's the only way I could find that it made sense. Also, the fact that he leaves and never comes back. It's giving very much, I have done what I sought to do. Right. Like he was only there for Suxi. Yeah, exactly. I, I like that. I think that makes sense. They keep moving. They find another passage. Scarlet's seeing this noose again. So again, that's calling back to, you know, her guild and what she must be dealing with. Okay, so, and this is another vague one, right? So, like, <laughs> yes, with Benji. With now. Benji. So, like, they have to repel down another hole. As Benji's about to repel, he hears crying. Is this a jump scare? This is the jump scare <laughs> that sent me into oblivion. Yeah, this one got me. Yeah, so Benji hearing crying, he's, of course, again, the last person to descend the hole. I guess because he's holding the camera. He straps in or tries to strap in as he's hearing this crying, looking around, trying to figure out what's going on. And all of a sudden, this scary, scary woman holding a baby pops out and screams at him, causing me to scream bloody murder. And next thing we know, Benji comes falling through the hole to his death at the bottom and he's dead. So she was holding a baby? I thought she was holding a baby. I didn't see that. I tried to rewind and watch this woman. I'm like, is this Suxi like now being dead? Oh. I didn't think so. I was thinking, did this have to do with the sins Benji came into the catacombs with? That would make the most sense, right? Like, did he abandon his family? Like, what's going on? Yeah. It's not made clear. Well, eventually we find out that Zed has a child that he never met. But honestly, the way that Benji dies, like hearing this crying child and then being pushed into the hole by this woman feels very much like you said he maybe abandoned his family or something. And that is what preys on him as he's in this tunnel. Well, because that boy in the striped shirt that we saw earlier, I was trying to figure out if that was George's brother or if that was Zed's child. That's what I was wondering, too. And I know that we see George's brother later, but I couldn't even remember what that little boy looked like enough to compare the two. We only see them for such short periods of time. We're not really meant to, like, put it together. Well, Benji is dead now, and I think the camera he's holding is done. But luckily, there's a lot of different other cameras, and now Zed becomes the primary camera guy. That's all he's here to do. Literally all he's here to do. (laughs) So, of course, they have to keep moving. So they're crawling back over the bones, and as they're crawling back over the bones, George is starting to hear some shit. He hears, George, help me. And as he moves the bones, it reveals water and Danny's face, his little brother, beneath the surface of this water, calling and helping him. And George begins screaming and digging in the bones for Danny, but Scarlet's kind of able to calm him down and remind him that nothing's real down here. So you could tell that George is experiencing a lot of guilt over, obviously, his brother drowning on his watch. They come out on the other side and they hear screaming. This inverse is so cool because when they had entered the catacombs originally, it was singing. It was that singing of that oh. co- of that like choral group of people. And now they're on the other side and it's screaming. Ooh. So like that inverse of that mirrored effect of like you're on the other side of hell. Mm. I was like, this is really, really cool. But they see light emanating from a hallway, again, very much of that like ceremonial, what they saw in the beginning. But instead of it being, you know, some sort of group of women with candles, it's a car on fire. And there's a guy in the car who looks very familiar. Oh, that's the guy. Because he was the fellow on the catacombs tour that told Scarlet where to find Papillon. Okay, that makes sense. Uh Uh-huh. 
Papillon recognizes what this is immediately, and it's something very traumatic to him because he immediately reacts to this car on fire and the person inside saying, it's not my fault, it's not my fault. I don't remember if it's the person or like the flames themselves are able to reach out and grab Papillon and bring him into the burning car. And soon the car is swallowed by the ground, including Papillon, so that the only thing remaining is Papillon's legs sticking up out of the dirt, just like his shins. Just a very eerie image. And also so weird, like the idea of this ground literally swallowing the car and just leaving his feet. It feels very like magical, but not in a fun way. No. But I mean, you know, if we are supposed to believe that we are in hell, who knows what's going on? So there's rumbling, which causes George, Scarlet, and Zed to leave. They are the only three left at this point. They rush down another hallway, and there's a bunch of fucking Grim Reapers walking around. Was there a bunch? Was it just one guy? I thought it was just one guy. I think at first it's one guy, but then I feel like as it gets like closer, there's multiple that are just, they keep walking by different hallways that they're trying to walk Mm -hmm. down. (laughs) this is where george does his little love profession (laughs) he grabs her face and is like scarlet whatever happens that week in turkey was the greatest week of my life and i'm like aww george fucking aww so with the power of love they advance in a chair in the center of this rocky room is one of the spooky men in a cloak and around the cave there are all of these like rock formations that look like screaming faces dotting the walls. Like gargoyles almost. Yes. This got me. This very spooky. But also like it doesn't feel surprising. As the three are trying to inch themselves across the wall to get to the other side without alerting the spooky man, which doesn't really make sense to me because they're shining their flashlights at him anyway. Like he knows you're there. The gargoyles come to life and start grabbing Zed, Scarlet, and George. And George gets totally messed up. Does he have like a gash in his neck? Thing bites his neck. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He bites his neck. And part of me was like, if this is hell, are these supposed to be like the souls of people who have come to hell? It was making me think of Hades. I remember Hades has that vat of souls. Or maybe I'm thinking of Ursula. Ursula has her little cauldron of souls. I was wondering if this is Satan and he has walls full of souls. The only like cauldron (laughs) of souls I can think of is the live action Scooby-Doo movie (sighs) and the Sanderson sisters. Like those, those are my only two (laughs) callbacks. Oh, I know the Scooby-Doo Cauldron of Souls. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Wow. Cauldron of Souls. That's a very common symbol, I guess. But anyway, Scarlet reaches for her stone, but her stone's not working, which forces her to go into her brain blast Jimmy Neutron mode and realize she doesn't have the right stone. This sequence is where I lost the movie a little bit because George is trying to say vitriol, vitriol. And she's like, what? (laughs) So she's like beginning to realize that I guess her taking the stone where it originally was, was a sense of greed. And she needs to have some form of retribution to gain the power of the stone by returning it to where it belongs. So she starts doing this weird Mario circuit where she has going back through the layer of hell that she just went up. You know, she's running through, she fucking face palms a wall demon, and I'm like, that's not happening. And then she gets to this <laughs> rope that Benji fell down and just starts climbing with her bare arms. I'm like, no way, this is fucking happening either. She's just climbing this rope with no attachments. No! The only thing about that is the passageway is so narrow, she's able to use her legs a little bit, but you're right. I mean, how many yards is this hole? What am I gonna say? A hundred yards? <laughs> My magic We're number. So good. It's at gotta be a hundred. <laughs> 
gotta be 100 yards. It's always 100 yards. It's really, really significant. But you're right. She's strong arming it back up. And her arms, I mean, she is like 111 pounds. You can't <laughs> stop a Virgo on a mission. You I know suppose. what? You're right. A Virgo with adrenaline. Everybody better watch out. She puts the stone back. She's looking for the hidden stone. These demons are advancing on Zed and George. What happens? I'm confused. Wait. Oh, my gosh. I'll tell you. Please tell me. Okay. So she gets... I'm so excited. She gets back to the room where we heard the story about the sun and moon. She replaces the stone in the corner where she found it. And then she's asking herself, okay, like, where's the stone? Where's the stone? Like, what am I going to do? And she clears the dust on this reflective sun Stone, yeah, I don't know. And looks at her own reflection. So she's the stone? She's the stone. She has gained the power of the stone. Because on the way back from this room, she sees her dad and apologizes to him. It's the same hanging figure that she saw in Iran. And now she's seeing him again. And she apologizes and said, I'm sorry for not picking up the phone that night. I didn't know how much you were hurting. And then he disappears, which symbolizes that she has atoned for that sin or that guilt that she has been feeling. She's able to run back to George and use her power now that she possesses to heal him. So we were all just all of the stone all along. It's like, so is she a magical being? Is she like... Well, that's left unanswered because it's kind of like, is she going to have eternal life now? I know. That's what I'm confused about. But also, if Flamel was supposed to have eternal life... Why is he laying in a crypt? I don't know. (laughs) But anyway, they find a hole, a final hole. (laughs) They try to throw a rock down it, get a sense for the bottom, but they don't hear any stone hit stone like they had previously. But Scarlet is like, it doesn't matter, dude, we need to jump. So they all share their regrets before jumping. George, this is where he says outward that he feels like it's his fault for his brother's death. Zed says out loud, I feel guilty about this child I have that I've never seen. And then they all just jump. It's kind of like when the Grinch hits the dump it to crumpet button and then like flies up the chute to Mount Crumpet. This was the vibe that I was getting from them jumping down this hole. It almost was more of a vortex. It was reminding me of Spy Kids too, where they're just (laughs) falling in the volcano forever. Yes! Where they're like scared for the first like 30 seconds and then they're just eating and like, (laughs) when's this shit gonna end? Like that kind of thing. That's amazing. And then they land on what? They would be dead. Like they would be so dead. They land on rock. Yeah. Earlier, Benji died. Okay. Exactly. What are the rules? But they're all there and they find this little like manhole cover on the ground and they try to pull it up, pull it up, pull it up, and they can't get it. They're getting stressed out. And then Scarlet in her anger hits it and it moves. So then they realize that if they push against the manhole, they can start moving it out of the way. And then they find themselves as they emerge from the manhole, right side up again, standing on the streets of Paris. Why am I mad that Zed survived? Zed had to hold the camera. I was like, <laughs> I was like, poor Zed. Oh, I'll go find your son. Like, make Pap survive. Like, Zed had no business being alive. You know what I mean? Like, I guess that Pap was a more developed character where he needed to atone for his sins and he refused to. And I think yes. that's part of the reason he got swallowed up, being Definitely. like, this is not my fault. Like, it wasn't my fault. All that kind of stuff where maybe because they all did take responsibility for it. But like, Suxi didn't deserve to die. That's a thing about this movie is these themes of redemption but also these themes of everybody not getting the same opportunity to repent for whatever sin that they've been carrying with them. Like, 
like you're right. We don't even know what Suxi Sin was. And based on what we saw from her, I mean, she's a great character. You know, it's very sad when she dies. I think her death is probably one of the hardest. But and most mean spirited. Yes. Oh my gosh, yes. And Benji too. Like Benji, we we watch him kind of get put through the ringer when he's down there, and then he dies after the most gnarly jump scare of the movie, and then we also never know what the deal is. I wonder if that was purposeful. Like, is it intentional that some people were left in more of a gray space where others had much more obvious stories? I don't know. And why did Zed get such an obvious story? And where was the boy that was haunting him? I thought that was a striped shirt boy. It must have. And it would make sense too if it was striped shirt boy because Zed is the only one that sees him. Maybe it depends on like the spirit of the person you betrayed. Like maybe this little boy isn't going to have a mean spirit. So he's not going to prey on Zed. Maybe Scarlet's father isn't going to want her dead. Same with George's brother. Again, like this child isn't going to carry the same spirit as maybe this like full grown woman who goes after Benji, Latope who goes after Suxi. Like I'm wondering if the spirit of the person you're carrying with you or that guilt has anything to do with how effective they are in annihilating you. I don't know, but it's weird. But then the movie closes on the interview that we saw earlier, actually. Just Scarlet, again, affirming that she is not after anything except the truth. And I think that's supposed to kind of convey to us her trueness of spirit and her really noble motives for going on this adventure and maybe why she ended up inhabiting the powers of the Philosopher's Stone in the first place. She proved her worthiness. (laughs) That's the movie. (laughs) Well, I have a couple post-plot things, a couple more interesting things to cover. So first of all, there are some connections to Dante's Inferno. I've never read Dante's Inferno, but I did find a couple of connections listed on an article from thisisberry.com, which is so funny to me. Who is he? But there are just a couple. I'm sure that there are more. But first of all, Dante's Inferno is a 14th century epic poem detailing Dante's descent to hell. Which I think is interesting because it sounds like that's around the time Nicholas Flamel was alive. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. And the poem, like the movie, has strong themes of sin, trauma. It's all about Dante's descent to hell, the seven layers of hell. I don't know what happens at the end. Another connection is Papillon's death. So the burning person was supposed to be his friend who he left behind to die while saving his own life. That's the vibe we get. But the method of Papillon's death was far more significant because he's left with his feet sticking out from the ground, which closely mimics an actual scene from Dante's Inferno. As far as those monsters go in the walls, they mimic gargoyles that actually exist in Dante's Inferno. So that's kind of cool. And then the man in the wooden chair, also we see that as Satan in the poem itself. So I guess that guy in a hood was supposed to be Satan. And then Latope mimics the guy who guides Dante down through hell, Virgil, but in a much more like twisted demonic way. I guess in the poem, Virgil is not as evil as Latope ends up being. Those are the biggest connections that I found, but I'm sure that there are more. However, I found this article that I thought was really interesting by Mara Bachman called As Above, So Below, Why the Movie's Title Isn't Based on What You Think. And this talks about how a lot of people initially think that this is a modern retelling of Dante's Inferno because of the similarities it has to that text on the surface. But she argues that it has much more to do with commentary on like alchemy, philosophy, and things like that. 
So she writes, quote, throughout its entirety, the film contains a wealth of references to an array of religious symbols and sayings, as well as those that pertain to its historically significant setting. While many fans of As Above, So Below attribute the title to the 14th century epic poem written by Dante, commonly known as his Inferno, it is actually a reference to Hermeticism and alchemy. This is me talking. According to Wikipedia, Hermeticism is a kind of philosophy connected with Hermes Trismegistus. I did look up the saying for that, and so I hope that that was close. And he was a legendary Hellenistic combination of the Greek god Hermes or Hermes. How do you say? I want to say like the designer handbag, like Hermes. I think it's I think it's Hermes. <laughs> Hermes. <laughs> My designer brain. <laughs> I don't even have a designer brain, but I just want to be like Hermes. And the Egyptian god Thoth. In Hermeticism, the statement as above, so below is a fundamental principle that suggests that whatever happens above also does below and vice versa. In short, the universe exists within an individual and the individual exists within the universe. When Hermeticism started implementing alchemy, astrology, and thurgy to its practice, the statement became even more complex, as above, so below utilizes these alchemical beliefs. In the film, the Philosopher's Stone has the ability to transform mercury into gold. This is a direct reference to alchemy, which does the same. While Scarlet initially understands the concept of alchemy in this simplistic view, their journey into the catacombs reveals the true nature of it. Throughout the film, the team is faced with the mysteries of death and birth while pondering on the possibilities of resurrection or rebirth. These three topics are vital to alchemy, as they are included in the spiritual investigation which creates the Philosopher's Stone. By the end of the film, Scarlet recognizes that they must confront their demons in order to escape. Once they confront what is below, they are able to return to the above, which in this context is their reality. By externally confronting their experiences, they've reached an internal resolve. Thus, the team successfully accomplished an alchemical practice that leads to the creation of the Philosopher's Stone, despite never physically manifesting it. Due to the hermeticism throughout the film, it is not a direct retelling of Dante's Inferno. As Above, So Below is a horror film about taking the spiritual journey detailed in hermeticism's alchemical beliefs. So it really does seem more about Scarlet confronting her own belief that finding the Philosopher's Stone would help her find peace with her father. Mm, yeah. Which it did. It did. The only way for her to do that would to be having it be externalized in front of her. And that makes me wonder, too, about how all three of these people fare in the end. We know Scarlet obviously inhabits the power of the Philosopher's Stone because she heals George. But because George and Zed share their guilt before jumping into that hole at the end, do they also inhabit the power of the Philosopher's Stone? Part of me says no, because they didn't go through that like retribution. Because to me, it made me think of to Helen back. She did go through Helen back in the sense that she traversed back through those layers of hell and gave the stone back and was able to like see herself in that True. image for what it is. And then she was able to heal George. So even though they atoned, I don't know that they hold the same spiritual power or significance that Scarlet did because they didn't have that retribution journey. They just kind of had a making amends journey or a recognition journey. Because even then, like Zed didn't atone for anything. He just recognized like, yeah, I have a son. But he didn't apologize <laughs> for anything. He didn't like, it's not like he like found his son in the catacombs and hugged him or anything like True. that. And it's not like George saved his brother. He just said, yeah, I said I was going to get help and I didn't. 
So it's almost like they went through enough of a journey to see themselves in this like alchemical way, but not in the way that would grant them this power of eternal life, which may not be this metaphysical thing of healing that Scarlet could do, but eternal life in the sense that they are no longer carrying around the guilt or the burden of what was confronting them in their own version of hell. I guess. Right. Like, yes, Scarlet did the most in these catacombs and she did go back through hell, which was terrifying, but she was the one that took the stone. So maybe because she took that stone and had that added layer that she had to go back and atone for in addition to confronting the guilt she had for her father, like maybe she just had more to do. It would be so strange if all they had to do to get out of there was confess what they feel guilty for. It feels a little bit of like a letdown, but at the same time, since I think that world was already set up to be very metaphysical and spiritual, it kind of makes sense for the film. I'm not familiar with Dante's Inferno enough to say whether or not I agree with what Mara Bachman says about what the movie is really meant to be doing or not. But I do think it's cool that the movie has all of these different topics that kind of merge in a really cool setting in an interesting style. Even though this movie, I think, is definitely, and we talked about this, like, exposition heavy, and even though, you know, these characters aren't my favorite, I still feel like there are enough cool things going on that it's worth the watch. But what do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a good found footage type of film that will give you a couple scares. But I feel like with found footage, it usually is devoid of that exposition that we're looking for. Like I think of Blair Witch Project or Paranormal Activity, where there is lore there for sure, but it really isn't connected to anything in the present or anything in history. It really is building its own universe, which kind of helps that anything goes type of logic that we see in Blair Witch, where you're bending with space time or in Paranormal Activity, where things are being thrown and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, well, that's this ghost. That's why it's allowed to happen. Mm -hmm. Where Instead, you're building a world off of these very real, very historically settled upon beliefs. But I think with Scarlet, it's so interesting because she was never interested in the power. And she's made that very clear early on is that I don't want the power. I don't want the riches. I don't want the treasure. I just want the truth because the truth would validate her in the fact that her father wasn't crazy. That is really interesting. It's kind of like a feminine approach to discovery. I think about Scarlet as the inverse of other explorers. I think of Captain Jack Sparrow for some reason. Like that's who's (laughs) coming to mind. Right. Or I'm even thinking about Nick Cage too. Like Nick Cage, a national treasure. Yeah, he's interested in the truth to a certain degree, but he uses his check to buy a fancy new red car and a house. And, you know, he's happy to get those riches where Scarlet doesn't get any of those riches. She doesn't even get a rock to leave with. And she's still happy with that. I feel like a lot of times we look at explorers on the hunt for acclaim or riches, but Scarlet is coming at it from a much less materialistic perspective. And so I think it's cool seeing a woman in this leading role as a fearless explorer who doesn't care about running through the catacombs of France with just a headlamp. But she also does have a different motive than what we usually see. I don't think that she like fills this role just like we've seen other men do before in other films, but she kind of has her own twist to it, which is neat. And the fact that she has this power to charm all of these men into doing her bidding. Mm -hmm. She gets Pap at the first conversation. She gets George underground, even though he doesn't want to be there. Granted, there's other things. (laughs) Like gets Benji to follow her around to film this documentary. Like she has the ability to convince people to follow what she wants to do she has a team around her desire 
That is a really good point. I mean, she has conversations with people hoping she can get them on her side and she always succeeds and it's amazing. We see her win people over in less than five minute conversations. That's really significant. It's like she's had the power of the stone all along. Oh my gosh. (laughs) The conversational stone. The Rosetta stone. The rhetorical stone. (laughs) But I'm glad we got to revisit this because I do think it's very significant to our history. Yes, I agree. It was so cool revisiting it. That jump scare still had me. Can't remember the last time I was impacted by a jump scare like that. But it happened and I screamed. And you know what? It was kind of fun. If you want to keep up with what we're looking to cover, definitely follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast and or feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com if you want to make any requests, correct us on anything, maybe my pronunciation of a couple of these today. <laughs> and until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.